Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. The Lord is good. It's so sweet that he allows us to be together. And it's so sweet that God has given us affection for each other. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a number of things in our church right now that God needs to heal people. And so pray that God will um, give grace If you don't grease gears and bearings, you know what happens. And the grease of a church's life is forgiveness and repentance. And uh, yesterday I refused to give forgiveness to my granddaughter for quite some time. It wasn't actually that long, but I was very angry. And she forgave me for not forgiving her. And I know it because I was out talking in the parking lot and she brought me a cinnamon roll. So be very careful to forgive and to repent. And be very careful to pray for other people in this church that are having reasons to not forgive and not repent. (laughs) Don't ever take those gifts in a church for granted. There are many churches that have uh, committed arteriosclerosis against each other. You know, the arteries are completely hard, and there is no hope for the relationships, but they keep coming to church together, and that's awful. So forgive and repent. Starting in your own marriages. There, you don't have to pay me for that one. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you because it does wash us. And we know it is you who is washing us because you are its author. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful gift of holiness in you and sin in us that allows us to worship you and to know why we worship you. And we pray this morning that you will give us joy and truth and that we will love the Apostle Paul for not flattering his readers. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let us hear what God has spoken in Romans chapter 9. We'll read verses 30 to 33. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith. However, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It begins with the question, what shall we say then, right? What shall we say then? Well, the then points to what came before. And you know that the chapters and verses of Scripture are not inspired. or They're not arbitrary. Generally, they follow thoughts. But in this particular case, this that we just read is a transition to what is about to happen. And what's about to happen is... The Apostle Paul is going to illumine to open up your heart in some of its worst filth. Because what he's going to do is he's going to show why it is that God's people refuse to live by faith and try to live by works. And so what it ends up being is just an extended opening up of our pride. But not just pride against each other, which is sort of understandable, you know? You think about, you know, sibling rivalry, you know? And how proud you are, each of you, of your particular gift and your particular relationship to your mama or your dad, you know? And every family has this. You know, I I said to somebody this morning that our grandchildren were all over yesterday, Not all, but thank goodness, not all. And uh, I watched Elias in the room I was in in the study, and I watched him essentially being a bully to his older siblings. Now, Elias, you know how old he is. What, two? Three? But he's a punk. That kid is a punk. You know, he's got this blonde hair, and he's cute as a button. And this blonde hair and this sly smile. And, and so I made the comment that it's, at one point they started fighting. And I said to Elias in the other room, I said, Elias, I'm going to spank you. You know, Grandpa can spank you. And all of a sudden he breaks into this big grin, you know. And, you know, he's, he's now workable. But what was going on was you had this jealousy envy thing going on with Elias and he was oppressing his older siblings and the siblings knew that if they did anything that made him cry they'd catch it from whoever the adult is because he's so cute and that's always the way it is with the youngest kid in the family you know the youngest kids are the terrors of their families they are were you youngest well yeah but you who's youngest That's funny. (laughs) Maybe I don't realize it. He doesn't seem to fit the mold to me. (laughs) Taylor fits the mold, right? (laughs) Recurring theme is Taylor uh, being our youngest child. We had a group text again this week. So you look at... um, You look at the pecking order of families and you look at the pride that's behind it and then you look at the apostle Paul dealing with this and I 
I keep saying this week I was asked uh, for a forum that's coming up uh, what books I would recommend to, to read on racism. Okay. And guess what my first two books were? Now, this is for leaders. This is not just for, you know, high school kids. And uh, my first two books were Exodus and, and Galatians. What is Galatians? Galatians is, is just, I mean, honestly, it's about the gospel and everything. It's just, it's a book on racism. You realize that. Racism of Jews and Gentiles. As a matter of fact, that's the theme the whole way through the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, that's the theme this morning. The Gentiles were filthy. The Gentiles didn't even care about righteousness. You remember what the Apostle Paul said about them at the, in the, at the very beginning of, of this letter to the Romans. This is what he said about the Gentiles. Okay? He said... God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Is this good enough yet? Okay. They are gossips, slanderers, hate. Good enough? Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is Gentiles. <coughs> because you remember, <coughs> he goes on and he says, but you, remember at the beginning of chapter 2, but you, you who keep the law, you're worse. So he's talking about the Gentiles here. The same Gentiles that it says here, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. That's an understatement, isn't it? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. Attain righteousness. But the Jews, God's people? No. Now, you may not want to call this racism... But how different are Jews and Gentiles from each other? Jews and Gentiles at that time were much more different than whites and blacks in America today. And the tension behind the book of Galatians, the tension all through the New Testament, the tension in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem yeah, you know, you can say, well, it's the Judaizers. Well, that's a nice label to give it. But it's the superiority of God's people. They have been told they're superior. They've been told that they are God's chosen people. The chosen. All right. And all of a sudden they look around and they see that they have been passed over. And they see that the church is filling up with the filth, the Gentiles, the goyim. And man, it would be like us walking into church one day and finding out that a bunch of women 
with Levi skirts on and hair down, we're sitting in our seats. Now, are you sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? Well, you know very well what I'm talking about. You're going to tell me that we don't feel superior to Pentecostals? And that we don't call them legalists? And that we know that God wouldn't work among Pentecostals? And you say, well, no, 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 it's Roman Catholics. I say, okay, take your pick. It could be Roman Catholics. You say, oh, no, 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 it's the Mormons. I say, okay. How about if it were, uh, how about if it were, what's the name of that place on East 3rd? What's it called? The, the church. Come on. The inclusive, what's it called? Huh? No, 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 the Unitarians. Well, okay, Unitarians. Yeah, yeah, that's good. You know, you open their hymnal. I've been there once and they had a hymnal. I opened it up and it was like, I love squirrels and I love acorns. And I love when, I don't like it when squirrels eat acorns. That was the refrain. It was all environmentalism green, you know, we use solar collectors. I mean, can you imagine if they came in this church and took it over? Bunch of women with braided armpits? Oh, come on. And so think about the Jews' attitude towards the Gentiles. Think about, if you're Asian, what you think of the Filipinos. Think about, if you're Central American, what you think about Puerto Rico. Think about what the Tutsis think about the Hutu in the Great Lakes region of Africa. Think about what we think about Bedford. And this is intense because the Apostle Paul keeps rubbing the Jews' nose in the fact that they've been passed over and that the Gentiles, who never even cared to be righteous, are now godly, holy, and saved. And it is a bitter pill. It's a bitter pill. And so he writes, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. Every family has the Gentile in the family. They're not pursuing righteousness. It hurts the mother so much. that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. But the righteousness that is by faith, in other words, it's not just a function of the Gentiles looking to Christ for their righteousness. 
It's a function of the Gentiles refusing to pursue righteousness, but being given by God faith. Because what shall we say to this? It's pointing back to a chapter that smacks us up the side of the head with the doctrine of election, of choice, of predestination. And so you can't set this up as a, as a moralistic thing about how you have to tweak it and get it just right. You know, the righteousness that saves is a righteousness that's not like the Jewish righteousness. The Gentiles had a different kind of righteousness that's by faith. So if I will pursue a righteousness that's by faith, then I'll be saved. I won't be passed over. Uh, so how do I pursue that righteousness? Well, you don't actually. God chooses you. No, no, God doesn't choose me, I choose him. Really? Where do you read that? Moses, when they're going in the promised land, he says to them, that they have to choose God and life, and they have to not choose death, and that they have to obey. The way they choose life is to obey. And so God doesn't choose us. We choose God. And then God works it out. So when we choose him, then he chooses us. Why? Well, because it wouldn't be fair. What wouldn't be fair? Wouldn't it be fair if he chooses me? Why not? He did choose you, didn't he? Well, yeah, he did choose me. I know that. I know that. But other people that aren't saved, it's not because he didn't choose them. Oh, in other words, it's not about you. You recognize God chose you, and that's why you chose him. Yeah. I mean, this is typical, really. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, okay, but what? He has to he has to allow everybody to choose him, right? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be right if he didn't allow people to have a choice, a free choice. It wouldn't be right. It, it's not just. It's not fair. Really. Now, let's go back to you. You're telling me you know that he chose you, right? Because, of course, that's the thing. I don't care what you believe about predestination and election. Honestly, I have yet to meet, now somebody will come up to me afterwards and do it, but I have yet to meet anybody that comes up to me and says, you know, I chose God. The universal testimony of those who belong to God is that God chose them and they responded in faith. That's what they always say. I have talked to Arminians until I'm blue in the face about what they're going to say when they stand before the judgment seat of God if they're asked, why are you here? And every single one of them will say, well, because... You called me. You gave me the gift of faith. You saved me. You lifted me up from the mire, and you set my feet on a rock. And I've never had an Arminian in any way call into question that they know that God chose them. That they know that they did not choose God until God chose them. And then they responded, right? The hound of heaven, you know the poem? And every Christian can give a testimony about God hounding them until they respond, right? 
Awakening their heart to see their sin. Awakening their conscience from the lethargy and slothfulness and hypocrisy of wokeism. I thought I was doing pretty well, and then God opened my eyes, and I realized that I was deluded. And, I, and I'm not spelling that D-I-L-U-T-E-D. Much worse than that. Not diluted, but deluded, which means completely self-deceived. That's what the entire social media is. It's a lemmings all going over the, the cliff. What should we say in response to this? And then he goes on and he talks about how the Gentiles who weren't concerned about righteousness have been given righteousness, the righteousness that is by faith. And the Jews who were pursuing righteousness have none of it. Why? Why? Well, it's a twofold answer, isn't it? Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. And so again, we can come back and we can say, well, what that teaches me is that I need to understand the difference between the righteousness that comes by faith and the righteousness that does not come by faith. Or now, I need to understand that faith is a critical component to the way God works. Right? And so then we pursue faith and we make faith into a work. <laughs> you know? Well, faith is important, right? We all agree faith is important, right? I mean, if you don't get that from this, you're not getting anything, right? Faith is important. And so I need faith. And so then we begin to describe how we became Christians. We say, well, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know? That's called a minced oath. Now, that's a joke. In other words, it's not an oath. But it's, it is a mincing because I put my faith in Jesus Christ when the Bible says faith is a gift. And so actually, you didn't have any faith to put in Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ put faith in you. But not faith in yourself, but he put faith that saves in you, Right? And so every time we hear truth from God, <coughs> excuse me, our temptation is to turn it into a work and to think, well, then I got to get this right. Got to get this right. We had a guy in this church years ago who, oh man, he loved this church. Just absolutely, you know, just absolutely loved this church. <clears throat> And two weeks later, he left. Now, I'm exaggerating. He was probably here a year. And when he left, the reason he left was that he was adamantly opposed to us having a prayer of confession where we confess sins to God. And he was absolutely determined to convince the elders and pastors that we ought not to confess sin to God. 
Because we're seated in the heavenlies. We have been forgiven. We shouldn't go back to the mire and the muck. You know, God's rescued us from this. And so it's a lack of faith to confess sin. So he left here and he got involved in a, in a ministry called Grace This or Grace That or Grace Something. And they met in living rooms and had some guy that would like... And everything was grace. Everything was grace. Grace, 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 grace. And I'm all for grace. But, you know, Scripture says more than grace. And I began to think about it, and I realized that they were convinced that since it was all of grace, that what they needed to do in order to keep themselves focused at the point of God's grace was to only think and speak and sing about grace. And so in a very twisted way, they turned grace into a work. And the thing that I thought was so fascinating was that it was like they had convinced themselves that they had to get their mind into a mindset that would save them. All right? And the mindset that would save them would be grace, 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 grace. It was like a Buddhist prayer wheel, you know, or a mantra. Listen, we never stop turning every gift from God into a work. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we take grace and turn it into a work? Isn't grace, by definition, not a work? Why do we turn faith into a work? I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and if you will just put your faith in Jesus Christ too, then he will save you too. Now, of course, I'm not going to argue that that's wrong. But the words matter. You know, they matter. We don't have faith until God gives it to us. I mean, you all know that's true. Faith is a gift, it says in Ephesians. It's not by works, because why? So that nobody will boast. And so that must mean that human beings, and if you don't mind, I'm going to use the word man generically, referring to both men and women. That must mean that man has a tendency to boast. And that includes you, women. (laughs) I mean, every woman's going to agree that men... (laughs) but how twisted it is when we take grace and faith and turn them into a work how twisted that is and so guess what the apostle Paul does the apostle Paul spends a significant part of his letter telling us that the reason that we have grace and faith is that God chose us. Now, you want to talk about a humbling doctrine. It's the doctrine of predestination. How do you end up feeling like you're hot stuff if God chose you before the foundation of the earth?
How do you do that? And so you look all across the Old Testament and you look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and chief elders at the time of Jesus and you see all of them very proud that God chose them. But they're not resting in God's choice. They're insanely pursuing the law. And I say insanely because Their pursuit of the law is so self-evidently hypocritical. We live today in an orgy. Of law. And everybody's fighting with everybody else that they're a better law keeper than the other person. It's not the law of God, it's the law of, of... racial equity, or it's the law of uh, sexual anarchy. But forget what God has said about race, forget what he said about sex. Look at the unbelievable intensity of fighting and of conformism and of testimony Everything that religion has, look at how it's just all over the place about law-keeping today. And to me, it looks just like the Pharisees. You know, you think about the fact that we've gotten to the point where it's a crime against humanity for a mother who has a little white girl with blonde hair to put them How come it's okay for black women to have, what are they called, the stuff that they weave? No, 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 the the long things, straight things. What are they called? Weaves. Weaves, okay, weaves. How come it's okay for black women to have weaves, but it's not okay for little blonde girls to have cornrows? Now listen, all of you are aware of cultural appropriation. You're all aware of this. It is a perfect parallel to what Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders who tithed their mint and their cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law. The trivialization of race today, it is intense, and it's not about black and white in America, I hate to tell you. It's nations. It's the Tutsis and the Hutus in the Great Lakes region of Africa, who for generation after generation have been slaughtering each other and continue to do it. Guess what? Given half a chance, you will kill your next door neighbor too. And if you think I'm wrong, you look at how your temper affects the way you drive and you think of how merciful God is that you haven't killed anybody yet. 
vehicular homicide. You think about the things you've said to your wife when you've been angry at her. And you tell me you aren't capable of killing your fellow man. And here we are tithing our mint and cumin. It's such a disgusting thing. I say over and over again, when I see the east side of Bloomington repenting of their attitude towards double wides and black teeth, then I'll think, when, when, when a professor's daughter on the east side marries the son of somebody that lives in a double white, then I'll think we're doing something about racism. Or better yet, when a white man has his daughter marry a black man. Or better yet, when I, when I see somebody moving up to work with Jim on the southeast side of Indianapolis. Pastor Jim. I forget, I can never remember his last name. Streetelmeyer. Oh. Don't you think, don't you even think that you know anything about racism because you're woke. You're not woke. You're not woke. When this country gets woke about blacks and whites, the first thing they're going to do is realize that nothing is going to get better in the black community until fathers go home. And you say, well, how do we do that? I say, we don't. What's this we, white woman? They do that. And you know what it's going to take? For black men, fathers, to return to their children? What is it going to take? You remember how the Old Testament ends? It ends that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And what does that? There is only one thing historically in human history that's done that, and that is the Holy Spirit and the power of God. That's the only thing. Regeneration, being born again. It will take the conversion of black women. They will stop emasculating black men. Now, am I not allowed to say this? Every idiot knows it. This isn't rocket science, but here we are, all caught up in being woke, and, you know, we're not going to have cornrows, and we're not going to, you know, we're, and, oh, no, I said it. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And we, we're not helping anything at all. We're not helping anything at all. Nothing. And you think I'm harsh in what I'm saying you look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Why was he so harsh to the Pharisees? They had a whole system, a whole system of righteousness. And the whole system was hypocritical. 
And they had all the people bound up in it, and everybody thought that this was honoring God. Everybody thought it was righteousness. And I don't think I have to, with you, describe that you took a string from the front of your house and you extended it over the top of whatever road you wanted to walk on on the Sabbath, and the distance that you were walking on the Sabbath didn't begin until you got to the end of the string. And that's social media today, and that's wokeism. And it's hypocritical. And it is a competitor for the righteousness it is by faith. Because nobody's being convicted of any real sin, because there is no real law. The real law of God is the very enemy of Black Lives Matter. And don't you think that I'm a conservative white old man and saying this. I've been saying this from the time I was a little punk. I I despise repentance of racism in America. I have watched it generation after generation. It doesn't amount to anything. What we're supposed to do is to love our brothers and our sisters. And wokeism is not about love. Because love tells the truth, and wokeism does not tell the truth. It does not tell the truth about the absence of black men with their children. It doesn't tell the truth about Planned Parenthood completely assaulting the blacks of America by hugely disproportionate numbers of their children who are slaughtered in abortuaries. And you're going to tell me that we should be concerned what people think about us on social media? Christians? We're the ones who have actually brought reform again and again and again across the world. It was Amy Carmichael that went and rescued these little girls from being temple prostitutes in India. We have taken literacy everywhere because we've wanted people to read the Bible so they know Jesus. We are the ones that started hospitals. We're the ones that that reformed prisons and are still reforming prisons. The whole sentence reform movement, if any of you are familiar with this, the whole reform of the sentencing in American courts today, I actually know the man that worked with Chuck Colson to get that going. His dad worked with my father, David C. Cook. His last name is Van S., Who was it that set up the Cabrini Green Legal Aid Clinic in the worst neighborhood of Chicago? It was Chuck Ogren, who was a loop attorney high up, but he played basketball at his church, LaSalle Street Church, with the neighbor kids from Cabrini Green. And so when they began to go to court, they began to ask him to come to court. Yeah, he's a corporate attorney. (laughs) You know, they'd say, hey, would you come to court with me? I'm going to court. So he began to go to court. And guess what? He quit his job. He set up the Cabrini Green Legal Aid Clinic. And he was a Christian. And his sister and her husband were the couple that were so encouraging to Mary Lee and me when we lived in Madison, and she, Mary Lee had a pierced nose and I had a pierced ear. Because they came down to the south side of Madison, and they visited us. 
and asked us to come to, to their church. Bob and Ann Woodson. If you want the approval of the world and you're going to take a stand against racism and you're going to be woke, it's utter hypocrisy. That stuff has never done nothing. But who has done something? Oh, 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 oh William Wilberforce. <laughs> okay, right here in the book of Romans, we're moving from a long section on predestination where the Apostle Paul shows that it has always been God's choice, that that's what it was in the Old Testament. It was said in the Old Testament. He uses the illustration of Ishmael and Isaac, both circumcised, both sons of Abraham, but one is the child of promise. God chose him. You remember this. He uses the illustration of a pot throwing their pots, and he says, hey, the potter has the right to do what they want with the clay, makes one vessel for a disgusting use and another one for a righteous use, right? He could not have been clear in the chapter 9, could not have been clear that it's God's choice. And he does that because the Jews are just furious. They're the chosen race. The Gentiles are filthy. Now the Gentiles are filling up the church. They're furious. And he says, God chose them. Okay? And now we're moving into a section where he's going to explain that the Jews got it wrong because the Jews thought that if they worked the law the way God commanded them to work the law, that they would be chosen, they would be saved, they would, be, they would continue to be God's people. And he's in this text opening the door up to explaining that the reason God's people are passed over is because we want to prove our righteousness. And we as a church are filled with this. And anybody who tries to prove their righteousness is an enemy of God. Because anybody that does that makes God to be a fool and tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ. If you think that there's anything in you that merits God's choice, anything that you can say to God and show God that will cause him to think that you're deserving. You are an enemy of God because you are trampling on his son who is the only righteous one. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
None of us are righteous. Not one of us. And the only way to approach God is in humility. That's it. I know it's hard for Germans. I only know that because Jürgen told me. It's really hard for Scandinavians. Scandinavians are so cold. Have you ever known a Scandinavian? I mean, they are just repressed. and It's like they were, they've lived their lives north of the Arctic Circle. And the blood hasn't begun to move yet. The milk of human compassion. Scandinavians, oh man. <clears throat> but personally, I can't stand the Dutch. And the reason I can't stand the Dutch is those fathers are so loveless. You ever known a Dutchman? I mean, trying to get a Dutchman to tell his daughter that he loves her, it's impossible. But his lawn is perfect. We are nothing. You are nothing. Your children are nothing. Jesus is everything. And only what redounds to his glory is pleasing to the Father. Because the Father loves his Son. Why does God the Father love his Son? Who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp onto. But he took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself He had no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted. And we considered that he was the way he was because he was a sinner. (laughs) He humbled himself even to death, to the death on the cross. And therefore, (laughs) therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him. What do you think that landowner will do to those slaves? 
Do you remember that? Jesus tells the story. And then they kill the son. Well, he's the son. Yeah, we'll kill him and then we'll own the vineyard. What do you think God will do to those who have consistently trashed Jesus Christ and who lead Black Lives Matter? Do you think God will be impressed with their righteousness? Okay, set them to the side. What do you think God has to say to you for wanting to be viewed as in touch and woke as the world would define it? You don't think I'm in a battle for your soul over what's going on in social media today? The Father loves the Son. And the only ones who are righteous are those who give glory to Jesus Christ. That's it. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name in heaven and earth. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you didn't choose him, he chose you. You were elected. And it wasn't because he saw some spark of goodness in you. God chose you just because. And, and listen, you're not persevering because you've decided to. You're persevering because... He is a good workman who completes the work he begins in us. You are God's workmanship. You may not like it. <laughs> Knock your socks off. He will win. He will win. Calvin is explaining this passage where he goes on and says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And you know, you think about this and you think, what is there about Jesus that's a stumbling stone? What is it about Jesus that is offensive? I mean, Really? I don't think I've ever heard of anything that's offensive about Jesus, have you? No, really, seriously. What are you saying? Well, yeah, there's that. But the preachers I hear, they don't. I mean, you'd have to read your Bible to know that. <laughs> Wouldn't suffice to go to... Just go listen to preaching. <laughs> you know, putting finger on sin. Are you kidding me? But listen, that's partly true, but I don't think that that's the center of it. Certainly, it was a lot of the reason that the Jews were offended by him, okay? But I think there was a prior offense. I think the prior offense was that the way the Messiah came was perfectly designed 
to humiliate every man and every woman because he was not what they expected the Messiah to be. And they had to humble themselves to follow him. He didn't whoop up on the Romans. He didn't end the regime of masks. <laughs> you know, he didn't explain charity to anybody and he didn't preach to them on their rights. See, I think, yeah, a lot of it is the sin. But I think it's that we realize that to follow Jesus, we have to give up on ourselves and we have to humble ourselves right to death where he is pouring his blood out on a cross outside the walls of the city. He had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And so why would we follow him? It would take a work of grace, you know? It would take an act of God. The reason that Jesus is offensive to us is that we have to give up utterly on ourselves and our goodness before we can have Jesus. And we really, really, really don't want to do that. <laughs> we really don't want to do that. Because it's so scary. Think of how many of you sitting here are absolutely convinced that you are the most disgusting person on the face of the earth. And so you might be thinking, well, well, if somebody thinks they're the most disgusting person on the face of the earth, well, they're ready for Jesus, <laughs> right? Right, that's what you would think. Except that there's nobody more desperate than the person who thinks they're the most disgusting person on the face of the earth, you know? <laughs> they're desperate to find something that isn't disgusting! And so the gospel is you take all that disgustingness and don't try to find anything that isn't. And you are perfect. Because now Jesus will have you and you will have Jesus. Don't, don't, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Nothing in your hand you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. Don't have something hidden like Achan underneath the tent floor. <laughs> you know, don't do it. Don't bring your disgustingness to God because it pleases God. Because it's only disgustingness that makes his son's death make sense. What else could require the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, to die? He didn't die for good people. He said when he was here, I haven't come for the righteous, as if there are any. But maybe 
you think that you're so disgusting that he won't have you, and so you better work a little bit to clean yourself up a little before he'll take you. And I want to read Calvin at this point. Calvin says, Christ, Jesus has been given to us for righteousness. There's nothing. Jesus has been given to us for righteousness. Everybody here is in agreement with that, or probably everybody. And then he says this. He says, whosoever obtrudes on God the righteousness of works. Now, I know that this morning you said to your wife, honey, I want to obtrude on you. Right? Okay, so what does obtrude mean? (laughs) Obtrude means whoever tries to shove and to intrude and to invade and whoever tries to move Whoever tries to obtrude on God, the right, whoever tries to invade God's territory, okay, okay, their righteousness of works attempts to rob God of his own office. If you try to bring your righteousness to Christ, you are robbing Jesus Christ of his righteousness. There is not room for both. There's not room for both. Calvin continues, and for this reason, it appears that whenever men, under the empty pretense of being zealous for righteousness, that's wokeism, Whenever men, being zealous, supposedly for righteousness, put confidence in their works, they do, in their furious madness, carry on war with God himself. Who is the enemy of God? The enemy of God is the man, the woman, the child, who thinks that they have righteousness to contribute to salvation. That's the enemy of God. That's the Jews. They would be damned if they were going to depend upon the foreign imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. They were going to bring things to the table. (laughs) And so they became the enemies of God. And if you look at the Jewish race today, can you believe how that race is given over to opposing God? They said his blood be on us and on our children. And visibly we see this today. And oh, Pastor Bailey said something negative about the Jews. Have you ever read your Bible? Aren't I supposed to preach scripture? Now, we will get later in Romans to wonderful promises about the Jews. And myself, I, I actually have always had, had a, a certain liking for Jews. <laughs> because they have a really nasty, dry sense of humor. 
and they love words, and they're real pushy. As a matter of fact, I think I'm Jewish. (laughs) Dear brothers and sisters, do not let Jesus crush you. Do not stumble over his righteousness. Do not try to bring yours to him. Do not be offended that it is all of grace. Because God will tolerate no enemies to his son. None. None. What do you think the master will do to those wicked slaves? I just love the theme of God's love and uh, what would you say? His, <clears throat> I love the relationship of the Father and the Son as we see it in the Gospels and especially the Gospel of John. God is so jealous for the glory of his Son. What a beautiful thing. I know some of you have fathers that aren't jealous for your glory and have not given themselves to you. But take comfort from the Gospel of John. Read it. And there you see such a perfect picture of the Father and the Son. And that's what God intended your Father to be. I shouldn't say intended. What I should say is that is fatherhood as God designed it because that's who God is. Okay. So, uh, so let's pray. And then we'll sing. And we need to sing now, right? We need to sing. We need to worship. That's what we've been made for. And music helps us to express things we can't express verbally. Although music is verbal. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of freedom from sin. We thank you that we no longer suffer under the yoke of the law, but that it has been our schoolmaster and has led us to abandoning our pride under the cross. Father, I pray for all of us who are here today. There undoubtedly are some here who are scandalized by the doctrine of predestination and who are scandalized by the doctrine of imputation, who, who can't believe their ears that Jesus came to save them because they're a sinner. I pray that you will give them the eyes of faith, that you will enable them to choose you. I pray, Father, that you will save us from our sin and that you will give us sweet spirits of forgiveness towards one another, remembering that you and Christ Jesus have forgiven us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.